0: Well, good morning, Northbrook. Hope you're having a great Christmas season. I know we were, uh, my my daughter and I were driving in today to church, and she said to me, I can't believe Christmas is next week. And I was like, me either. I should probably buy your Christmas presents. (laughs) Just kidding. I think my wife already bought them. But I hope your Christmas season has been going well, and uh I'm excited to celebrate uh, Christmas with all of you. hope you can make one of our Christmas Eve or Christmas Eve Eve services. Uh, but today we continue on in our Christmas series, B.C., before Christmas. The book of 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 16, which takes place around 1000 B.C., the prophet Samuel is told by God, to go to a little village in the nation of Israel, and he is going to go and find a man named Jesse. And God tells Samuel that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the future king of Israel. And Samuel is to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the future king. God doesn't tell Samuel which son. He just says, go to this little village, and when you get there, I'll tell you which son." So Samuel travels to this little village, and I'm sure it was uh, a pretty big deal as he arrives. Uh, It's a small town. Everyone knows everyone else. And the prophet of the day comes walking or riding into town. I'm sure word started buzzing. The prophet was in town. Everyone wanted to know why he was there, what was going on. And Samuel makes his way to Jesse's home, and he invites Jesse and all his family to a special sacrifice— that Samuel is going to perform, and it is at this sacrifice that God is going to reveal to Samuel which of Jesse's sons is going to be the future king of Israel. Everyone tracking with me so far? Okay, because if you've already lost, we're in trouble. It's early, right? Okay, so picking up the story in First Samuel 16, starting in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Okay, so let's just summarize what happened here. Samuel invites Jesse and all his sons to this special sacrifice. And uh, Jesse and his sons show up, and apparently it becomes Israel's top model. Jesse sends his sons one at a time in front of Samuel. Now, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us if it's by age or if, if, you know, dad just picks the best looking one first and sends him out. We're not sure. But Jesse sends his sons one in front, one at a time in front of Samuel. And Samuel takes a look at the first son and he goes, this guy looks like a king. Like, this has got to be the guy. He's tall. He's handsome. It's got to be the guy. And God says no. And then the next one comes and, and, Again, same thing happens, right? Samuel's like, oh, this has got to be the guy. And God says, no. Because these guys looked like you would think a king would look like. They were strong. They were tall. They were handsome. Um, interestingly enough, in a recent Dead Sea dig, they found some ancient drawings of uh, what five of Jesse's sons looked like. And so if you're curious, uh, I can show you. Would you like to take a look? Yeah? Okay. So here are what they look like. Canny resemblance. I just can't place where they look really familiar. Okay, they didn't find ancient Dead Sea drawings. That's just maybe my imagination of what they probably looked like. But they looked like you would think kings looked like, right? And God says, says to Samuel, he says, just because they're tall, like, like short people can be good leaders too, which is really good news for Pastor Mike, right? (laughs) he's not here today. (laughs) God says, God says, I don't look at the things that man looks at. And so it gets a little awkward at this point because Samuel goes through all seven of Jesse's sons. And at this point, Samuel's like, well, maybe I got the directions wrong. Maybe this is the wrong village. Maybe there's another Jesse in town. He's like, you got any other sons, right? At this point, Jesse does what anyone does when they have a large family, right? He starts doing the head count. Well, I got one, I got two, Three, four, five, six, seven. And it's like he has this moment, like in Home Alone, you know? He's like, oh, Kevin! Or in this case, oh, David! Okay, not exactly. It's not so much that they had lost or forgot David. Jesse knew exactly where David was. Jesse had sent David out with the sheep. It wasn't so much that David had been forgotten as that he wasn't even invited. I don't know which is worse. And so Jesse says, Well, yeah, I got one more son, his name's David, right? He's the 15-year-old, he's the youngest, he's out with the sheep because wild animals don't just take a holiday because of prophets in town. Like somebody's gotta watch the sheep. And apparently Jesse either couldn't or wouldn't find a friend or a neighbor to watch the sheep. And so he sends his own son to watch the sheep on the most important day of his family's life. He sends the youngest son, David. To wash the sheep. So continuing on. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. I wonder what happened if someone tried to sit down. But anyway. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Whew. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. This is the one. The one everyone thought was the least of the brothers. The one that wasn't even invited. This, of course, is the David that we most of us in the room are familiar with. David who killed Goliath. David who became the king of Israel. David who wrote many of the beautiful songs in the book of Psalms that we have in Scripture. That David. But But I hope you can see the humor, the irony in this story. God could have picked anyone in Israel to be the future king. And he could have done it any way that he wanted. He could have held, in Israel's Got Talent, Israel Idol, Israel Survivor, Israel Amazing Race. But instead, God picks this 15-year-old boy in this really small, insignificant village. And in this village, God picks a boy that is so insignificant in his own family that he wasn't even invited to his own anointing ceremony. He's the least of these in his family. He's the afterthought. You ever felt like an afterthought? You ever felt like you were insignificant or the least? Maybe in your family. Like if everyone's be invited to something in your family, you're going to be like the last one to get invited, like the afterthought. Or maybe not in your family. Maybe at work or in some other situation. You, you feel like... You're an afterthought. You're insignificant. Or maybe you just don't feel like you measure up to others. Maybe you, you feel like you're the, that, that, the 15-year-old boy with all the older brothers. Maybe you feel insignificant at, at your job and your family. Maybe you compare yourself to others and you feel like you don't measure up. Comparison is so easy in 2021, isn't it? With the internet, social media. I don't know about you, but I find myself constantly battling comparison. Everywhere I look, it's just so easy to compare. Uh, I like to run. I'm, I'm a runner. Uh, I've ran five marathons. But if I'm being honest, every time I go on running websites or running social media, what I do, I don't compare myself with the runners that are slower than me. Of course not. No, I compare myself with the runners that are killing it that are better than me. I'm like, oh my goodness, why can't I be as fast as that person, right? Right? Or, or why can't I do the ultras, right? I mean, marathons. Now, now it's on to ultras. Or why why can't I be an Ironman, right? Or or man, I'm not as good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as that runner. Constantly comparing myself. Or I go on uh, I go on social media and, and I read about other different people. Like for example, I read this article recently uh, about this dad who built his son a roller coaster powered by his pedal bike. I thought I was doing so well for Christmas with my kids. And then I was like, well, guys, you're not getting a roller coaster for Christmas. If I made it, it would definitely not be safe. It's so easy to compare. Or I go and I, I listen to other sermons by other pastors, and I'm like, you know, I'm thinking I'm doing pretty good. And then I'm like, wow, their jokes are not as corny as mine. Those are actually good. And everyone said, amen. It's so easy. And I, so I don't know where you find yourself comparing Again, I don't know. Maybe it's family, marriage, parenting, at a job, the hobby, and your appearance. But I think it's human nature. I've yet to find anyone that can honestly tell me they don't find themselves comparing themselves in any area of their life and feeling at least a little bit inadequate or like they don't measure up. No matter what area of your life you feel insignificant, the Christmas story is really good news. For anyone who's ever felt like they don't quite measure up in some way, some area of their life. Because in the Christmas story, we find this theme that we find throughout scripture. And the theme is this. God notices, God loves, and God works with people who feel insignificant. In God's kingdom, it's not about measuring up to something. It's not about proving something. It's simply about realizing that there is no measuring stick, but rather an invitation. An invitation to accept the free love of God and be a conduit of that love to others. I got good news and I got bad news. The bad news is no one in this room is good enough. No one in this room measures up to God's standard. But the good news is God took care of that. God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross, and now it's not about measuring up to anything. It's about accepting that you have already been accepted. You've already been invited. You've already been found good enough, not because of anything you did, but because of what God did for you. And that releases the stress, the tension, the anxiety of feeling like you're battling something, like you're trying to prove something to yourself or to others or to God. God noticed David, a boy that everyone else believed was insignificant. His own family didn't even think he needed to be invited to the family's anointing ceremony. But God saw something. God saw David. Now you might be asking what David has to do with the Christmas story, and that's a fair point. Anyone know the name of that little town that David was born in? The name of that town that Samuel went to to anoint David? Bethlehem. The same Bethlehem that is a part of the Christmas story. A couple hundred years after David, around 700 BC, so about 300 years after David, the prophet Micah would write these words about that same Bethlehem. Micah 5, verses 1 and 2. Mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with a rod. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. Now I've already spent a lot of time uh, this uh a few weeks ago in my message, and Pastor Mike's already talked a lot about uh the prophecies in the Old Testament and how the Israelite nation had to wait for hundreds of years to see those prophecies actually come. Uh, to fruition. And so if you've missed the past few weeks, I encourage you to check those out online. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the implications of Micah prophesying 700 years before Jesus. But it's interesting because Micah prophesies around 700 BC, 700 years before Jesus, that the Messiah, that the ruler that they were waiting for, would come from Bethlehem. Which is surprising to say the least because Bethlehem during Micah's day would, is not exactly a thriving city. It was very insignificant. And that would continue to the time of Jesus. If you were an Israelite and you were going to make an educated guess about where a ruler for your people might come from, you would say Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the big city in Israel. Jerusalem was where the decisions were made. Jerusalem was where all the money and the power originated. So if you're going to guess where a ruler would come from, you would say Jerusalem. At the time of Jesus, uh, a conservative estimate would put Jerusalem at about 40,000 people. Even other cities like Capernaum had about 15,000 people living in them. Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth, before the census, had about 300. To put that in modern day terms, Bethlehem was a one-stoplight town with a gas station and a restaurant inside the gas station. It was a small village. It's only claim to fame, Bethlehem's only claim to fame was that the King David had come from Bethlehem a thousand years before Jesus. But God picks this insignificant town to be the place that his son would come into the world. You know that Christmas song, A Little Town of Bethlehem? It's not just a catchy Christmas song, it's a reality. Bethlehem was this little village it's not a place that you would imagine a king would come from. But God picks this insignificant village to be the starting place for one of the greatest moments in mankind's history the birth of his child. And God announces it through the prophet Micah 700 years before Jesus comes along. And you have to wonder how many insignificant or seemingly insignificant moments God had to work through in order for everything to come to a perfect place for Joseph to come back to Bethlehem 700 years later with Mary to give birth to Jesus. How many marriages, how many love stories, how many, how many, Lives had to be affected. How many insignificant moments did God have to work in and through over those 700 years to prepare the world for that exact moment when Joseph and Mary would come riding into Bethlehem? See, the Christmas story is a great reminder that not only does God work through insignificant people, but God works through insignificant moments. We often think that God only works in these big moments, that occasionally he shows up in our lives and does something and then he leaves. But the reality is God is very intimately involved in every detail, every moment of our lives. God is at work even when it appears that he's silent spent a lot of time talking about this in a message a few weeks ago. If you missed that, check that message out. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time now. But let me just say it again. That if you are in the room and you feel like God is silent or not involved or not paying attention to your life, the reality is that God is very much involved even when it appears he's not saying anything. But it's not just Bethlehem. Everywhere you look in the Christmas story, you find these insignificant moments, events, people. For example, Mary. An unknown girl, probably around 15 years of age, from a small town, is asked to be the mother of God. And then you have Joseph, a carpenter, probably about middle class, small town, to be the earthly father of God. And you know, we we hear the Christmas story every year, and we kind of lose sight of the significance of that. I mean, you would think that if God was going to send his son to the world, he would send his son to the rich, the famous, or at least religious leaders— royalty. But God chooses to send his son to an insignificant 15-year-old girl and an average carpenter. And the way their child was born, so unusual. The child was born in a stable or, or cave. Uh, most Bible scholars believe uh, that When they came to Bethlehem, remember, there's only about 300 people in Bethlehem. It's, It's not like they got denied at the Holiday Inn. You know, we kind of commercialized the Christmas story, and they showed up, and Holiday Inn was full. Joseph forgot to call ahead. That's why it was a silent night. It's not what happened. What more likely happened is when they showed up, they went to Joseph's family home, and Joseph's family's home was already full of relatives. And so to give Mary a little privacy, they offered Mary the stable Or the cave outside their home where the animals were kept. Because there was a little shelter there and that was much more private than the already absolutely packed house. And so Mary and Joseph go out to the stable or or cave with the animals and it is there that God's child is born. And there's no bed. There's no ornate crib to place him in. They place him in a feeding trough or manger. Such a crazy, bizarre way for God to enter the world. And then we read about the first visitors. God sent angels down to earth to announce his birth. To who? The rich, the famous, social media influencers, royalty, religious leaders, shepherds. And again, we we lose sight of how significant that is. Because we've heard the story over and over. Shepherds in Jesus' day were at the bottom of society. Shepherds spent all their time out in the fields with the sheep. They were dirty. They were smelly. And because they spent their time with sheep, they were considered religiously unclean. So they were not allowed into the Jewish temple to worship. The religious leaders looked down on shepherds so much so that in the written oral law, one rabbi said that no one should feel obligated to help a shepherd who fell down into a pit. You want to know how you know you're at the bottom of your society? When your own religious leaders tell everyone that they don't have to save your life. That's how you know you're at the bottom of your society. And it wasn't just that. The perception of shepherds were that they were liars and thieves. Shepherds were not allowed to be witnesses in Jewish court. They were insignificant. They were looked down on. They were not allowed in the temple. They were not allowed close to God. But in this beautiful moment, God says to the shepherds, in essence, okay, if my religious leaders won't let you close to me, I'll invite you to my son's birth. And The shepherds, they they go to Jesus' birth, and yes, probably because angels invite you, and when an angel invites you to something, you can't say no, right? But more than that, this is the first time, this is more than likely the first time in those shepherds' lives that anyone religious has invited them to anything. And God invites them to be witnesses and messengers for his son's birth. If you've ever felt like the religious community looks down on you, if you've ever felt not good enough, if you've ever felt like you're on the the low rung when it comes to religious circles, the shepherds are good news for you because God says in essence to the shepherds, I don't care where religious society puts you, you are welcome at the birth of my son. You are good enough. The only people in the Christmas story who had any social status at all were the magi. And of course, we love to commercialize the Magi, right? We call them the three kings. A, they weren't kings. B, we don't know how many there were. There were three gifts. There might have been ten. There might have been two. We're not sure. But the Magi are wise men. They come and they, they, they visit Jesus. And uh, even in the story, they're kind of like the grandparents, right? Like, they come. They hand off their gifts. They sugar up the kid. They give him the loud, obnoxious toys. And then they leave. They're like, all right, we're out. We got to go. We got a long camel ride back. And they're only in the Christmas story for this very short amount of time. The Christmas story over and over reveals this this simple truth. If you feel insignificant, if you feel inadequate, if you feel forgotten, if you feel like you don't measure up, if you feel like in religious circles you aren't exactly the darling, you're in the perfect spot. Because God loves you, and he sees you, and he has a plan and a job for you to do to bring his kingdom down to earth. I wonder if Mary ever felt inadequate as the mother of God. I mean, I think she must have had to, right? She was human. I can only imagine the struggles, right? As Jesus is a young boy. Uh, Jesus, I know you can walk on water, but you still got to wear a life vest just like every other kid in the boat. No, you can't summon a storm to get out of school. sure Mary felt inadequate. Parents, you ever felt inadequate as a parent? Okay, the rest of you, uh, we have a life group for parents that we're offering in the spring. We need someone to teach it, so we'll be in touch with you. It's great. As a parent, I I constantly feel inadequate. Uh, We have a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 6-year-old at home. And uh, I, I think I figured out why I always feel inadequate as a parent, because just when you feel like you finally have the season that you're in figured out, the season changes. You know what I mean? Like, I remember when our daughter, our oldest, was born, and uh, I like to be prepared, right? Like, I like to know what's going on. And so I did everything you're supposed to. Like, I read all the books, right? Like, what to expect when you're expecting. Like, even the books my wife read, I read just so I could be prepared. And of course, podcasts weren't really a thing back then, so I didn't listen to podcasts. But I read all the books. And let me just say, like, I love reading, but reading those books did not prepare me at all for the birth of my child, right? Like, there's something, there's something no one can prepare you for when you are given your child and you have to actually leave the hospital, right? Like, it's one thing when you got the nurses and the doctors, it's all good. But then they're like, no, you have to leave. You have to go home. And I remember like getting in the car and driving home and, um, I'll be honest, I'm, I drive really fast, right? I'm always in a hurry, and uh, my wife looked at me, and she was like, are you going to go 10 miles under the speed limit the whole time home? Like, I'd like to get back today. I was like, yes. I was just so nervous, right? And uh, our daughter would be, the first a number of months, uh, slept during the day and was awake at night. And, you know, we'd hang out with other new parents, and they'd be like, oh, our kid sleeps great at night. And we'd be like, great. good for you. It's awesome. And then we'd leave, and we'd be like, we're not hanging out with them again. And uh, we finally figured—and and by the way, like, how can a baby scream so loud? Like, I did not realize that something so little could scream so loud. And so uh, we're new parents. We don't know what we're doing. And so we finally figured out, like, the best way to get our daughter to sleep would be car rides. And so I would take our daughter for car rides in the middle of the night. And she'd be screaming and, like, put her in the car seat. And we'd get out, you know, on the road. And immediately, quarter mile down the road, boom, she's out. Until I come to the first stoplight and I have to stop for a split second— she starts screaming again. Like, what in the world? And just when you kind of figure out the baby season, right? Just when we kind of figured out how to, like, change them without incident and feed them and get them to sleep at night, you wake up, you have a toddler. And it starts all over again, right? Like, now, all of a sudden, you're potty training, and you're trying to keep them happy, and you're going into stores. And you're like, okay, we have probably about a 30-minute window before she's hungry, so may the odds be ever in your favor. Good luck. Godspeed. And then when you finally have the toddler thing figured out, you wake up and they're in elementary school, and suddenly they can argue with logic and reasoning. and You are like, wow, I liked you better as a toddler. And that just keeps going, right? It never ends, right? Like, then they just keep growing, and you have a middle schooler, and now our oldest is 12. This summer, we're going to have a teenager, so your prayers in advance would be appreciated. The season changes. But you know what? The Christmas story, some of you are like, please get to the point. Okay, here you go. The Christmas story is wonderful news for any parent that's ever felt inadequate. Because if God could trust a 15 year old normal girl to be the mother of his son, then you better believe he trusts and believes in you to be the mother of, or dad of your child. You can feel inadequate, it's okay. God believes in you, you don't have to be perfect. Yeah, you're going to make mistakes as a parent. I'm sure Mary made mistakes. She was human. But God believes in you. God loves you. God sees you. And now take that, for those of you that are like, I'm not in a parent season of life, take that and apply it to wherever you are in life, at your job, in your marriage. Whatever it is where you feel insignificant, like you don't measure up, the good news of Christmas is that God sees you. He loves you. He believes in you. And you can take the pressure of feeling like you're not good enough and you can let it go. You can take the pressure of feeling like you don't measure up the mistakes you made in your marriage or the mistakes you made at your job or or all that pressure, all that shame. You can let it go because God sees you and he loves you and he's not disappointed in you. The good news of Christmas is God sees those that don't feel like they measure up and he loves them. And he invites them into the work that he's doing in the world. So currently, my favorite Christmas song is uh, Little Drummer Boy. It's been my favorite for a number of years. Anyone like Little Drummer Boy? Any of you hate the song Little Drummer Boy? Okay. We're going to call you the Grinch today. Just kidding. I love the song Little Drummer Boy. And I love it for two reasons. Number one, I find... A lot of humor in the song. Because let me tell you, after my wife gives birth to one of our children while we were in the hospital, if I had said, hey honey, I have a surprise for you, bring in the little drummer boy, (laughs) we would not be still married. So I find humor in it. But secondly, if you can get past the rump-a-pump-poms, it's actually a really, really cool story. By the way, it was written by a woman, just in case you thought maybe a man. No, a woman wrote it. So apparently... A drummer boy at the birth of Jesus is acceptable. So if you can get past the rimp-pum-pums, there's this beautiful story. And of course, it's fictional, but it's still beautiful. There's this little, little drummer boy, and he is invited to join up with the caravan of wise men that are going to the birth of Jesus. And so he goes with them, right? He's excited to see this newborn king that the Magi are talking about. And so he gets there, and suddenly he realized everybody brought gifts, Ever been in that moment where you showed up somewhere and you were like, "Oh, we were supposed to bring a gift. Well, this is awkward." And so he gets there, and right, the, the, the magi have their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh. And I don't know, I don't know what you do in that situation. I would have probably been like, "Hey, guys, could you just add my name on the from line of that gold. That'd be great." But uh, the drummer boy has a better idea, and he he boldly steps forward and he says to Mary, "Hey, can I? I don't have any gold. I don't have any frankincense. I don't have any myrrh. I'm a poor drummer boy." But I do have a drum. Happened to bring my drum. I can play my drum for you. And as the song goes, Mary nodded. I'm not sure if she nodded like this or like this, but he took it as a yes, either way. And he starts playing his drum. And after a bunch more rum pum pums the song says, the, the boy says, I played my best for him. Speaking of baby Jesus, I played my best for him. And he smiled at me. And I love that story because I think in the Christmas season, or really any season, we can get into this mode of feeling like the drummer boy. We can look around and feel like everybody else has their lives together. They brought the gold. They brought the frankincense. They got the myrrh. They got every. They, their marriages are great. Their, their parenting is great. Their, their jobs are great. Everybody else has it all figured out. Everybody else came prepared. And we feel like the drummer boy going like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I don't have my life together. Like, I feel inadequate. I don't don't feel like I measure up. And there's this beautiful reminder in this song that God loves you and he doesn't need you to have it all figured out. He's inviting you. He's inviting you to simply accept his love, to love others, and know that as you do, he smiles at you. Jesus' coming to earth... One of the things he was called, he was called the Prince of Peace. And I just think about how many times I lose my sense of peace because of this feeling inside of me that I have to, I have to perform. I have to prove something to someone, either to myself or to, to others. Right? Like, I, I just, I, I have, I'm not good enough. I'm not measuring up. But if I try a little harder, if I work a little harder, I get a couple more corny jokes in my message. Like, then people will like me. Right? In the Christmas story, that the Prince of Peace reminds us that we can let that anxiety, that pressure, that stress, we can we, we have a choice, we can let it go. We can accept that God loves us, He likes us, He invites us into what He's doing in the world, and it's not about measuring up, it's not about having it all together. It's about resting in His goodness. It's about resting in his love. It's about finding that peace that doesn't come from us performing, but finding peace in knowing that he sees us, he loves us, and we are invited. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the Christmas story. I thank you that you are a God of the insignificant. I thank you for the shepherds and Mary and Joseph, Bethlehem, the, the people, the events, the places in this story that remind us that you are a God that sees those that feel like they don't measure up, those that feel insignificant. This Christmas season, Father, I ask that for those in the room that feel unseen, for those in the room that uh, are feeling troubled, discouraged, anxious, I pray they would feel your peace. I pray that they would rest in the knowledge that they don't have to perform or prove anything. May they find find peace this Christmas season knowing that they are loved and seen by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.